evening. My name is Michael McKay, and you are listening to Registry Report Radio. We've got a hell of a show for you tonight. I'm really excited about it. Our guest will be Dr. Alyssa Ackerman, who is a criminologist and advocate for both victims and criminal justice reform. And uh, we'll hear a little bit more about her in just a moment. I want to remind you how you can be a part of the show. You can always listen live to our broadcast simply by clicking on the links that you see in social media. Or if you're not near a computer, don't have an internet connection, you can always call into the show and listen to the show on any telephone, whether it's a cell phone or a wired phone. The number to call in order to do that is 563-999-3712. And in fact, tomorrow we'll be doing a bonus episode where we'll be inviting our listeners to call into the show with their questions and comments as we discuss the recent Supreme Court of Georgia ruling on GPS tracking of sex offenders for life. So we're going to move right on and let me introduce our co-host. The first one I want to introduce is Dwayne Daughtry. How are you doing today, Dwayne? I'm doing very well, thank you. How's life on the East Coast? Well, we've gone straight from... I would call it a summer in winter. Now we're actually starting to feel the temperatures dip down around here. It's going to be an interesting, I guess, spring upcoming. So we're right here in March. It's, it's very, pretty, very pretty cold where I am. Well, uh, how about you, Elizabeth? Are you getting any cold weather down there in Florida? Yeah, it was almost 80 yesterday and the day before, and tonight it's 38. And uh, we barely missed one of those tornadoes that hit Alabama. Oh, wow. We had one hit very close to the house here, and it was we had two and a half inches of rain in an hour. Oh, my God. It's still 80 degrees sounds pretty darn good. If it wasn't for the fact it was Florida, and I'll never set foot again in Florida, that would sound very tempting. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's uh, let's welcome Shauna. Uh, how are you doing, Shauna? Are you ready for tonight's show? I am. I'm really excited. Uh, I have spoken with Dr. Inkerman personally and like just off messages and stuff, and I'm excited to actually talk with her. Super. I think we all are. So since you mentioned Dr. Ackerman, let me get right into introducing her and hearing what she has to say this evening. Dr. Alyssa Ackerman is a criminal justice professor at California State University, Fullerton. She's been researching sexual violence and sex crimes policy for almost 15 years. She's written extensively on the topic and is often called on by media to comment on cases related to sexual victimization, public policy, and accountability. Her most recent co-authored book is entitled The New Campus Anti-Rape Movement, and it was published in 2018. She has another book on the way called Vicarious Restorative Justice, which will be coming out uh, early this year. Dr. Ackerman is, a, as I mentioned, a restorative justice facilitator who's worked with over 500 men and women who've committed various sexual offenses. And her work was recently featured in an HBO Vice News segment. She's also authored a lot of really great papers that I am kind of familiar with. The topics alone ought to stimulate your curiosity. She's authored papers on newspaper reporting as it pertains to sex offenders, religion and spirituality in former sex offenders, relationship between height and sexual deviance. That one I haven't read, but I definitely am going to have to read. And also a paper on corporate profits 
in prisons. She's an advocate for criminal justice reform and victims, and she's all over the place. The only thing I can think of, since you're in so many places at the same time, Dr. Ackerman, I can only assume that you, like me, are an insomniac. That's absolutely true. Well, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. I mean, I've been I've been wanting to have a conversation with you ever since I started doing this sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about your work and what brings you to this sort of advocacy. Yeah. Uh, and first, I'm really excited to be here with all of you as well. So I have been a sex crimes researcher for the better part of 15 years. I began this work in my master's program at John Jay College of Criminal Justice back in 2005 and found myself in a class on sex crimes, which as a survivor of sexual violence didn't really make sense to me, but I'm so glad that I took that class because it ended up giving me my entire career. And so I started out really trying to understand whether registries work, whether residence restrictions work. We know that they don't. Um, And I spent many, many years studying these policies. I at one point held the only national data set that I had collected scraping data from every state registry. So I had everybody that was publicly registered and did a bunch of analyses on that and and found that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children had inflated the numbers of people who are listed on registries, um, which brings about a lot of fear for people. And as I said, I I did that work for so many years and got to a point where I realized that work was done. We know these laws don't work. There's no other way that we can write this. The laws aren't effective. And so about five years ago, I realized that I sort of felt like a fraud because I had spent all of these years doing work as a sex crimes researcher, but never honored the fact that I was a survivor too. And I reached out to a close friend of mine who's also an academic. And I said, you know, I have this story to tell, but I'm so afraid that people will not take my work objectively if they knew that I was a survivor. And she said, no one is going to think that because if you're advocating for less harsh policies and you're a survivor, that pretty much says that you're objective. That same person then um, asked me to come meet with the men in her treatment group to talk to them as a survivor. And I had never done that. I had compartmentalized the survivor part from the academic in me. So for years, I'd been face to face with people who had committed sex crimes, but I had always done so as Dr. Ackerman. And so this was you know, taking off that shield, taking off the mask and just showing up as Alyssa. And it turned out to be one of the most life-changing moments of my entire life. I knew going in, you know, my values tell me honor the humanity of all people. None of us want to be labeled by the worst thing we've ever done or the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And that rang true when I met with these men. That first night was just sort of a favor to a friend. Um, What we didn't realize at the time was that we were actually doing restorative justice. And so since then, I've shifted my work to really focus on restorative justice, less so on research and more so on being out there in the community, talking to people, working with people, facilitating restorative justice sessions. And as I said, that's led to a meeting now with over 500 people. And I continue to do it because it is life changing for all of us. I can imagine. Now, I see the phrase again and again in your work where you're seeking accountability and acknowledgement. Could you explain that a little bit more? Sure. So survivors of sexual harm will say over and over again, they need a voice. They need control over the process that happens after they disclose. They want the person to be held accountable, meaning they want the person to take responsibility for their behavior. And they want acknowledgement that harm was caused to them. The criminal justice system does not allow for that. In fact, the very makeup of the criminal justice system pits one party against the other. And so, you know, people who have caused harm or people who are being charged with causing some kind of harm, 
it's very, very difficult for them to say, I'm sorry that I behaved in this way, because automatically that makes it sound like they're guilty. Restorative justice allows people to be in a safe space and allows them to really talk about what this experience was like for both of them. It allows the person who has caused harm to acknowledge the harm that they caused, which is exactly what survivors say that they need. A lot of times people will say that restorative justice is soft. I'll be the first one to tell you that that's absolutely not the case. When I've sat with people and they've said for the first time, yes, I committed a sexual assault against you. Yes, I committed a rape against you. And I am so sorry for the pain that I caused you. And then working with them to come up with ways that they can continue to hold themselves accountable um, is far more effective, I think, than any prison sentence could ever be. Mm -hmm. You stress also the idea of survivor storytelling. And I think what that means it should be fairly obvious to people. Do you, do you find it difficult to find perpetrators of sexual offenses to tell their side? Do they have stories to tell as well? Absolutely. In fact, given, giving the safe space to them to be able to be vulnerable and open and authentic, oftentimes they do share their stories. A lot of times they didn't realize the harm that they caused until we're having the conversations that we're having. And to be frank, many people who commit sexual offenses are themselves survivors of sexual abuse, of emotional abuse and physical abuse. And until we're sitting in those spaces and they have the, the safe, non-judgmental space to unpack some of those things, they don't talk about it. When they're sitting with somebody who is um, being vulnerable and authentic and sharing their truth, it sort of holds a mirror up for them. And they mm -hmm. begin to to talk about their own stories with their own trauma. You've done many, many face-to-face -face restorative justice sessions, but you've also done vicarious sessions. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Sure, so vicarious restorative justice is what I did that first night when I met with this group of men in treatment. They did not know me, I did not know them. I just came in as Alyssa the survivor, and I told them, I'm, I'm here to have a conversation with you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not angry with any of you. I want to learn from you, and I want you to learn from me as well. And so vicarious restorative justice sort of takes one step away from putting somebody who's been harmed in the same space with the person who harmed them. Oftentimes, one or both parties is not ready for that to occur. So bringing survivors into a space with, with somebody who has perpetrated a sexual offense or bringing several people who have committed sexual offenses into the same space with a survivor that they do not know is what we consider vicarious restorative justice. And I can give you a great example of that. Just a few months ago, I had a man who had committed a rape about 40 years ago who had never gone through the criminal justice system. He reached out to me and he asked me if I could put together one of these vicarious restorative justice sessions for him. Uh, because I knew him and the survivors that I was going to bring into the space, I asked somebody else to facilitate. So there was four survivors and this man who had committed a rape. By the end of the session, he remembered the name of the woman that he had harmed. He had forgotten it for 40 years. But sitting wow. with four other survivors and hearing our stories and then him getting to talk about his own stories, he was able to remember her name and he said it out loud for the first time in 40 years. That's how powerful vicarious restorative justice can be. Wow. I can't even imagine. I know Dwayne has some questions for you, so I'm going to pass the baton over to Dwayne. Take it away, Dwayne. Thank you for being with us tonight. When I hear of your story, I keep thinking of the Brene Brown vulnerability on the TED Talk, uh, if you're familiar with that. Uh, very much so, yes. So, <laughs> so you talk about this as far as the groups and getting together. Do you find that because many states have laws that prohibit 
victims being with the accused and so forth. Do you find that sometimes it's difficult to facilitate such groups? You know, I found exactly the opposite of difficult. And I think that's because when I'm in some of these rooms, I'm the closest that some of these individuals are ever going to get to being able to apologize to the person that they harmed. And so we do right. role-playing exercises where I will, where they give me permission to read their police report and only their police report. And then I take on my own, like I use my own experience to talk about the impact that harm has caused. But then I use the details from their police report and pretend that I am their victim. And then we go through what it would be like for them to actually make that apology. And the tears that I have seen, the hugs that I have had with some of these men and women has been nothing short of amazing. So acting as this proxy victim for them or having a conversation about what an apology might look like for their victim, if they are ever going to get off parole and have the opportunity to, to talk to the person that they harmed, what would they want to say and how would we craft that message? So it's been really fruitful conversations without any difficulty. I think if there yeah, is any difficulty... That's great to hear. Yeah, I think if there is any difficulty, sometimes talking with men and women whose, whose convictions are for things that I have never experienced. So for instance, I'm thinking of one individual who had been convicted of a child pornography offense. And as I sat in this room with him, he said, I don't even know why I'm sitting here. Why am I listening to you? What I did there's no comparison between what I did and what you experienced. But six months later, when I came back to the group, he said, I've been thinking about you for six months. And if the children in the images that I viewed experienced even a quarter of what you experienced, I will never look at another image of child pornography for as long as I live. So even people well, who have nothing, their offenses have nothing to do with what happened to me, still find value in our conversation. You mentioned that there are people that have been offenders that have been offended, meaning that they are two victims from past issues. Do you think that branding with the current registry and so forth is actually a hinder toward mental health advocacy of those people or offenders getting professional services to deal with their pasts? Oh, absolutely. I think that the registry does nothing but shame people and isolate people and makes it very, very difficult for them to be able to access any of the resources that they need. And I think that if we provided access to those types of services, we would see a lot more healing and a lot less destruction. Yes, Living I agree. on the registry is not and easy. Absolutely. I think one of the questions that a lot of people kind of are perplexed about is how the registry has become amplified and more significantly higher than murder, homicide, terror, perhaps treason. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that this has become the, I guess, public enemy number one in the eyes of some? Yeah, you know, I think it's a very simple thing. I think that most people want to maintain this us versus them mentality. As you know, the original purpose of these registries were for a very, very small group of highly dangerous recidivist offenders, and it's easier to think of them. It's easier to think of those individuals and anybody else with this label as a monster than to believe for one second that somebody that you love is capable of causing harm to another human being. And so we have set ourselves on this path that anybody who behaves in any way outside of what we consider to be acceptable must be that monster because, well, I don't even know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> 
a lot of it people boggles don't. my <laughs> mind. It boggles my mind. But I think it comes down to this us versus them mentality that none of us could ever be like sex offenders when any one of us has the capacity and any one of us, if we think back to the things that we did when we were teenagers, could have landed us in that very space. Right. And lastly is that we talked about the voice, control, accountability, acknowledgement, and uh, pitting one against another when it comes to the judicial system. We find that judges ask or demand remorseful behaviors, but the system doesn't provide those opportunities. And sometimes the attorneys themselves hinder a situation of you want to be free to speak out and say, I'm sorry or whatever, but it falls on empty and deaf ears at times. Do you have any suggestions for those that are just trying to, I wouldn't say relive their uh, court experiences or legal woes, but maybe for attorneys, is, is this a good conversation to have? I think this is a really important conversation to have. And as you were speaking, I thought of the case of Brock Turner. So for anybody who doesn't know that case, Brock Turner was a, a swimmer at Stanford University and yeah. at a party got very, very drunk and sexually assaulted a woman behind the dumpster. When right. he was working with probation for his pre-sentence investigation report, he said that he wanted to say that he was sorry. And he was told, say nothing, because anything that you say will be used against you in a court of law. If you read the victim impact statement from that case, the victim in that case made it very clear. She said, if you had just apologized to me a year ago, we would not be in this space right now. But instead, we were both dragged through a year-long court process that was traumatic for all of us. So I think if we do, we should be having these conversations with attorneys because the criminal justice system does nothing to help survivors and it does nothing to help people who have caused harm. I think that restorative justice offers opportunities to decrease some of the harm that was caused. Now, Brock Turner is a level three registrant in the state of Ohio. And for what? How does that protect anybody? He made a mistake. He did a very stupid thing. He's learned his lesson. He's never going to do it again. And so instead, we're wasting taxpayer resources to have him listed as a level three offender where there are other things that we could have done to hold him accountable, like making him go on his own dime to colleges and universities to talk about what he's learned from this case. Absolutely. So nice to talk to you finally. Um, hey, Shauna. I, I believe you and I are kindred spirits. Everything that you say is everything I have been saying for like the last three months, and I haven't been able to figure out how to say it correctly. I agree with you that I think these solutions are simple, and it comes down to the forgiveness and the healing, and the criminal justice system does the exact opposite of that. And I will share also with you that I am also a victim many times over. When I was actually pregnant with my last son, who's three, somebody tried to sexually assault me as I was pregnant. A lot of people don't know that. And when I was in group, we had an assignment and we had to write to our victim and we also had to write to our abusers. Most of the time I was the only, the only female in the counseling sessions other than, you know, the counselor. And I wrote this letter to my stepdad who had done some things to me. And every man in that room bawled their eyes out and they said, we didn't know. And sexual assault on males and females is a different trauma. And... We have to understand that, and we have to address that. If people had a safe space, like you're talking, where they could just come and say, hey, I got these urges, and what do I do with them, and, and learn how to 
control whatever it is that's making the emergence happen because pretty much it comes down to a lack of control. I was in group for 14 and a half years. I've learned these cycles, you know, and there's lots of things that can be helpful to people that are on probation from people who have been there, who have done that. Seems like if you're a felon, you have no way to help and make a difference. You know, you're a doctor. People listen to you. But it's the same concept. It's the same idea. But it's like two totally different sides of the rope. And we just got to bring those two ends together. And hopefully this can change. How do you feel about it? Yeah, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that if we used our resources to provide safe spaces for people to talk about issues that they're facing, right, if we destigmatize some of the issues that people who have caused harm face, this would be a very, very different, uh, we'd see very, very different outcomes. I believe Shauna's having some technical difficulties where she's at. So let's go to Elizabeth. I know she's got some questions for you, Dr. Ackerman. Sure. Hi, Dr. Ackerman. How are you tonight? I'm so good. It's so good to talk to you, Elizabeth. Oh, it's so great to have you with us. Can I play a little snippet of your TED Talk, please? Would that be okay? Absolutely. I'm going to play the last minute of it. And what really got me is the last 10 seconds. Reactive public policies that name, shame, and isolate people might make us feel safe, but they don't make us any safer. Wanting revenge and lifetime suffering for people who sexually violate others makes sense. But as valid as these feelings are, they do not and they will not decrease sexual violence. Healing from intimate harm requires connection, uncomfortable but necessary connection. Hugging a man who committed a violent rape might not be for everyone, but wholehearted listening and engaging difficult conversations most certainly is. Each and every one of us has the capacity to heal society's most intimate wounds, one connection at a time. That was really powerful for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. After my abuse came to light, I struggled with what I felt like I had done to my dad. That just, it was so traumatic for me. And extended family saw that and they were upset at me. And I I just couldn't wrap my 11-year-old mind around that. Why are they mad at me for still loving my dad? So that also became a struggle. So I think I blocked him out, tried to forget about him. So as not to cause, you know, any ruckus in the family. But later on, I was able to reach out to him and he asked my forgiveness and I was able to give it to him. And I didn't realize until listening to your talk how I had been punishing myself for, one, letting my family down because they couldn't understand how I could still love him. And two, for doing that to him. And so... There are many years between that, all that, in your talk that I punished myself because I, I didn't understand either one. But, but your talk was so powerful for me. The light came on. It was like, oh, I get it now. I so get it now, what I've, you know, what I've been going through. And I hope that other people will listen to your TED Talk and pay special attention to it, especially if they're a survivor. That truly nothing else has helped me all these years. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, it, it it took a lot of courage to do that TED Talk. I have been called, as I say in the TED Talk, I've been called every name in the book. And oftentimes they come from survivors and survivor advocates because they don't understand how I could advocate 
for the policies that I advocate for. But I wholeheartedly stand by that comment that healing from intimate harm requires connection. And oftentimes it's connection to the very people who have caused us harm. Yeah, I didn't understand why I needed to do that. But I needed to know that he was sorry. And I had known for some years, you know, through him writing my grandmother letters, that he had great remorse. And of course, you know, by the court, he couldn't have any communication with us. And so I contacted him when I was legally able to that wouldn't get him into trouble. I needed him to know that I stopped carrying that hate and I didn't have it in the first place, but I didn't want him to feel that way. I wanted him to heal as much as I wanted to heal, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You know, people have asked me if I, so I didn't know the man who hurt me. You know, it's not my only experience with sexual harm, but the the case that I talk about publicly, I didn't know the man. Uh, And people have asked, you know, you write so publicly about this. He's got to know that it's him. What would you do if he contacted you? And I would love for him to contact me. I would love to be able to sit face to face with him and ask him questions and tell him that I forgive him and that I don't hold any anger for what happened. Yeah. After I did that, I had two other brothers and one day over coffee, I got to discussing it with one, my oldest brother, and he said, I wish I had done that before he died. That would have saved me years of trauma. I wish I would have thought to do something like that. He goes, but it's, and a lot of times it just doesn't occur, especially when the courts get involved. You think that that person is so upset with you, so angry. And, and I guess here's another point to it, too. Some of these cases are not violent. Right. So people on the outside don't understand that that some of these cases are with a, a perpetrator who felt like they were showing love. And maybe it's because their bodies weren't respected and they had no boundaries or they didn't experience that. And they they really do not understand the trauma and the harm that they caused. I, I think a lot of people or at least in my experience, I felt like it was a blurring of the line that he didn't mean to harm me. He didn't know that he was. He didn't he didn't understand how harmful it was. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely spot on. I would say that most cases are not violent. And yet people see they you know, they look on the registry and they see a statute and they make assumptions about a person because of the statute that they're convicted of and not anything about that individual, right? There, you know, there's 917,000 people on public registries, according to National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That's 917,000 people and their families and their stories that we don't hear. We just see this aggregate number and a statute that somebody was convicted of without ever thinking about right. the person behind And them. we assume the very worst. Right. Uh, so Dwayne had touched on this earlier about how perpetrators may not be able to show guilt because their attorney won't allow them to. And I was wondering what your thoughts were about the court-mandated counseling. Do you think, my feeling is, they're so traumatized by, by that point that they fear being honest and they fear getting the adequate treatment if they have these issues because they've been so penalized. They're afraid mm-hmm. that it will result in, in harsher punishment or more penalties. Yeah, I've been lucky that the, so most of the men and women that I've worked with are mandated to treatment, and I meet with them in their treatment programs. And I've been fortunate enough to work with treatment providers who absolutely honor trauma-informed practice 
Uh, and I think that's really, really key because after everything that somebody has been through, dealing with the criminal justice system, dealing with probation or parole, dealing with GPS monitoring, they feel kind of hopeless and they feel kind of broken. Trauma-informed practice means that we treat the whole person. We don't treat the offense. We treat the person. We teach them what pro-social relationships look like. We teach them what respect looks like. A lot of these people never had that. They come from traumatic backgrounds. Um, and it's not a justification or an excuse, but it helps us to understand why people offend in the first place. So when we treat right. them as human beings and we model healthy, pro-social, respectful relationships, they begin to feel safe in those spaces. And I've been really fortunate that the people that I work with, and one of them actually wrote the book on trauma-informed practice for people who commit sex offenses. Right. One more question. So for our listeners tonight, if there are family members or perpetrators or victims, what would you suggest? If they don't have restorative justice locally, what would you suggest to them, say, you know, to each individual who may be, you know, on the three angles of this? Yeah, to anybody. Your feelings about this are valid. Whatever you are feeling is a valid feeling. There are ways to bring restorative justice to uh, local communities, and that might not be for every, everybody. You can hold two things. You can hold anger. You can hold hurt. You can hold pain. You can also hold joy. You can also hold happiness. And you can hold those things simultaneously. So whether you've been victimized, you are somebody who has victimized, or you're a family member, I believe that there is hope. When I began this work 15 years ago, I was told, do not enter this field. You will never have a job. No one will ever listen to you. And I'm so glad that I didn't listen because here I am 15 years later doing this show and having people reach out to me who are coming up in their master's programs and PhD programs who are registry activists. That wasn't the case 15 years ago. And so we're starting to see some change. We've seen the AG's report out of Michigan. We've seen the case uh, just today out of Georgia. There's hope on the horizon. So please don't ever lose that hope. Right. And thank you so much for, for giving us that hope. Dwayne has another question for you, I think. Sure. Thank you, Elizabeth. That's, those are great questions. And Dr. Ackerman, I do have a question about the LGBT community. We see so many crimes that are prostitution-related, uh, exposure, sexual improprieties. I remember it's kind of like the George Michael days, but they, mm -hmm. you know, we're fast-forwarding into today, labels on top of labels. Do you think people, those in the LGBT community, and possibly people with autism, ADHD, do you think that they're more in danger by being registrants versus registrants in general? Absolutely. I think that LGBTQ people are more vulnerable across every spectrum simply because they are LGBTQ. Now you add the label of registrant and they become even uh, more of a target. So yes, I think they are at greater risk than other registrants, though I think that all registrants are at risk. We've seen vigilantism. Right. Um, we've seen the way people on registries are treated. Now add LGBTQ or, as you said, autism spectrum. Anybody who is othered in some way is more vulnerable. Absolutely. And are you working on any university-based research that may be helpful for other researchers or possibly scholarly evidence that can be introduced for lobbying or advocacy programs? At this point, the work that I'm doing is all restorative justice related, and I've sort of put the research aside because I'm so immersed in practice, right. but I'd like to get back to that. 
And I'm sure there's many, many advocates that are possibly listening tonight. Is there anything that they can do to possibly help you with your research uh, if that comes into the future? Should they contact you via your your internet website or or? Yeah, how? I would say the the best place to contact me is through my website. It's alyssaackerman.com, and that would I absolutely would, I'd welcome help. I have a question for you, Dr. Ackerman. Some of the things that you have been talking about thus far on the show have just spawned a ton of questions in my mind. I'm, hopefully, I can I can get them all out to you here. Uh, the first one I have for you is in reference to sex offender treatment programs. Now, I'm, I dare say that any program that you were, in, were involved in would probably be a good one. But what is your opinion of SOTP programs in general across the United States? I mean, I can't speak for all programs across the country. I'm not aware of all of them. If they are trauma-informed, then I think they can be very helpful. If they are not, I think they can be very harmful. And, I, I, you know, and I'm aware of shame-based uh, treatment programs that are not particularly effective. Right. I've been involved with one. I know that Shauna has, and uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that Dwayne may have been involved in one as well. And uh, I've seen really great programming, and I've seen some really horrible programming in, in, in those those kinds of situations, and I was curious to see or to hear what your opinion on that was. The, the other question I had was, in your work as a criminologist, when did you make the transition? Uh, I won't call it a transition, but what, what caused you to start considering the people that you were studying as more than just subjects of research. I mean, I know you mentioned the meeting you went to. Was that really the first time you saw them as, as something other than something to study? No. You know, I think I'm, I may be an anomaly, and, and people have said this to me, but when I talk about the night that I was raped, I talk about this man as a human being. I talk about him as the assault was happening, thinking, what happened to this person to cause him to behave in this way? So I think even when I was a kid, even as a teenager, I still saw, somehow saw his humanity. And when I went into this research, I still thought of every person that I was working with, every person that I interviewed, every person that I came in contact with as a human being. I think the shift for me was recognizing that very, very few people read peer-reviewed research. Uh, and that's when I started thinking about what I could do differently, what I could do to make a change. I didn't go into this work to write a bunch of articles. I went into this work to end victimization. You can't end victimization if you're not talking to people who have victimized. It's a cycle, right? Many people who have mm -hmm. victimized have been victimized themselves. We have to get to the root cause. So I think I've always held the view that people who have committed sexual offenses are human beings and they deserve to be treated as such. I think a lot of times researchers lose sight of that, and I feel very fortunate that I never did. Do you feel that in general the justice system goes straight to the how do we stop this phase without ever considering the why is this happening question? I don't think the system even thinks about how do we stop this because the research is pretty clear on what we could do to stop sexual offending. I think that there's a lot of carceral theater going on. It makes people feel good that we continue using the policies that we use, uh, but I don't think that the criminal justice system is actually thinking that they're preventing sexual violence in any way. I see. We've been able to get Shauna back on the line. So Shauna does have a question for you, Dr. Ackerman. Go ahead, Shauna. Sure. Um, I was listening in and I heard a couple of things. So I just wanted to make a couple points. I wanted about the uh, victims and the predators or the whatever, whatever they're calling them. I, 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 the wordage just irritates me. But anyway, the people involved, when they come back together, sometimes the victims are mad because 
they got the person got charged. Sometimes they're upset, mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. don't understand that either. They they think that the victim just absolutely has to hate that person, has to want the worst for them, and that's that's not the case most of the time. And like you said, you know, if you give them that space and that safe space for forgiveness and and talking about it and owning it, it's great. The SOPE training. I'm learning how to unprogram myself. Does that make sense? Like now that I'm not on probation? Sure. I think that makes perfect sense. I think that the system has a way of socializing us, if you will. Yeah. Um, And you have to unlearn that when you're living in the community, not under uh, probation sanction. Well, with still, of course, having the the registry over my head and all that. But I mean, just the littlest things like seeing a kid walking down the street when I was on my run, I moved to the other side of the road and looked away from him. And I immediately noticed what I did. And I was like, it's just as, it's as normal as putting my shoes on. And I was like, why am I? I am not a monster. Like, right. I have to program what I've been told for, for 16 years. And it, that's mm-hmm. that. And I think if we do it the way you're talking about doing it, bringing the people together and let healing happen, let forgiveness happen for both parties, we'd see an immense change. The only question I have for you is how can I help? Keep on talking about this message. I think it's important that we get this word out. You know, when I started talking about restorative justice a couple of years ago, nobody wanted to hear it. They they thought I was nuts. But more and more people are coming to the table now, uh, like doing shows like this, talking to people on social media. We've built a camaraderie among all of us, among all registry activists. That's a really, really beautiful thing. So I think just continuing to talk about this and advocate for it will get more people on board. This is what survivors want. As you said, very, very few people want to see the worst thing happen to the person that harmed them. What they want is to know that it isn't going to happen again to them or to anybody else. And they want some acknowledgement. The criminal justice system cannot and will not do that. So this is an opportunity to allow that to happen. I could give you a great example. I facilitated a restorative justice session between a woman who was raped by one of her best friends when they were in college. They had been drinking and smoking pot and she went to bed and he came in in the middle of the night and and raped her and for 10 years he denied it he thought it was just drunk sex and then they sat down for this restorative justice session and the first thing he said the first words out of his mouth were i can't beat around the bush anymore i raped you and that has led to a year's worth of conversations that i facilitated with them about the harm that's been caused the criminal justice system could never have seen that come to fruition what this survivor said to me in the aftermath was, I've been living with PTSD for 10 years. Restorative justice changed that, and my body is thankful. Dr. Ackerman, I have a question. What if, how does the restorative justice concept work if the victim doesn't consider themselves a victim? And I know there are some cases like that. What do you think about those situations, and how does restorative justice work when that happens? Sure. So I think that restorative justice isn't for everybody. And I think that there are some people who don't consider themselves victims of crime. And that's okay. That's why the vicarious restorative justice process is so powerful. Because if somebody has been convicted of an offense, even if the person who is considered to be the one who was victimized doesn't feel like a victim, there are still proxy people who can sit in in that space and talk about the harm that can be caused from actions like the ones that the person was convicted of. You say that you have been the target of a lot of hate, and I can I can yes. totally relate to that as a person on the registry. 
how do you respond to the emotional people's emotional hot buttons being pushed when they're clearly not receptive to a rational discussion? You know, it, it's taken some time to get to this space, but I'm a firm believer that some people are just not ready to hear this message and they lash out in anger because of it. That's about them and where they're at. It's not about me. I believe in the humanity of all people. And if people are going to be angry at me because of that, that's on them. I believe in the work that I'm doing. Yes, it is hard to hear those things about myself. But at the end of the day, I can't control what other people think or feel. All I can do is offer this message and they'll come around when they're ready to come around or they won't. And I feel sorry mm -hmm. for people who live in anger and live in hatred. It's no way to live. So my hope is that they come around. More people have come around than not in my experience. That's great. That's great. Now, I, I did watch the video that featured you on the beach uh, where your offense took place, but it never explained the 12 stones. Would you be willing to, to share with us the significance of the 12 sure. stones? Sure. So that was not the rape that I, not the beach that I was assaulted on. That was a beach near where I used to live in Washington state. Um, and I've always found the beach to be a very healing place. And I've thought that even with this assault that happened. The 12 stones, I'm not really sure what the purpose of that was, but it's something about laying those stones in the sand and claiming that space that is very grounding for me. The number doesn't signify anything, although it has always been 12. And I've done it on every beach I've ever been on anywhere in the world. And it just grounds me. It makes me feel calm. It makes me feel safe. It's like leaving my mark, like I'm still here. And mm -hmm. I'm doing okay. That's great. Would you uh, would you tell us a little bit about your book that's coming out, what it's about, and what you want people to take home from it? Sure. So this new book is probably the most important piece of work that I've ever published, and I've published a lot. It is on the vicarious restorative justice process, and it lays out how to do vicarious restorative justice both in treatment programs and in the community. And it talks about all different cases that I've worked on, um, both traditional restorative justice, facilitating between a person who was harmed and a person who caused harm, to treatment groups, to community groups. And it offers the words of people who have participated, both as survivors and people who have caused harm. It offers their words, talking about what this process has been like for them. Uh, and the book actually ends with the word freedom. Uh, and that came from the man who had committed a rape 40 years ago. And so it's just this really cool book that, that lays out the fundamentals of this process that Dr. Joe Levinson and I have created over the course of the last several years. It sounds wonderful. I know that I'm getting messages from the co-hosts all saying they want they want a copy of the book as soon as it's available. So Absolutely. Yeah, you can put me on that list, too. Uh, one more question I have for you about the apparent conflict between victim advocacy and registry reform advocacy. I mean, I know there is no conflict there, and, and you know there's no conflict between the two. You can actually be an advocate for both, but tell our audience a little bit more about how difficult it is to get people to realize that you don't have to be one or the other. Yeah, you know, some victim advocacy organizations are coming around. Um, there was a great chapter in a book a couple of years ago by Rachel Bandy, where she interviewed people who worked as uh, victim advocates and sexual assault advocacy centers. And basically what they were saying was that it's very obvious that the registry doesn't work. And so they advocate for less harsh po policies as well. But that seems to be few and far between. 
I agree with you. I, I don't think that there's any difference. If you are trying to put an end to victimization, you have to embrace both sides of this. You can't separate people as us versus them because the f- fact of the matter is is that the majority of us, whether we are on the registry or whether we have experienced harm, most of us have experienced some kind of harm in our lives and we or some kind of trauma in our lives, and we can connect on that level. So I don't see why it's so difficult to see both of these things. The only thing that I can think of is that victim advocates don't want to be seen as soft and they don't want to be seen as taking the side of the other, which mm-hmm. seems like nonsense to me because I have a foot in both wor- both worlds every day. Sure. We had Mary Sue Molnar on the show last week, and one of the things she told us, which I think a lot of people found surprising, was that the the successes that the, her organization, Texas Voices, the successes that they have usually come about because of the support from victim advocacy groups, where they actually step forward and say, hey, this isn't working. It's not helping our cause or their cause. It, that we need to start working towards making our communities safer, and this is not doing that. Is that what you're finding right. as well? That is exactly what I'm finding. Super. Well, we are we are so glad to have you as a guest on this show, Dr. Ackerman. We're definitely going to have to have you back sometime, especially once your book comes out and we want to let people know about it. Tell our listeners where they can learn a little bit more about your work and, and contact you if necessary. Sure. So you can find me on my website at alyssaackerman.com. I'm also on Twitter at Alyssa Ackerman. And if you're in the Northeast in the next month or so, I'm actually going to be helping put on a conference with One Standard of Justice in Connecticut. It's a restorative justice conference bringing together people who are on the registry and their family members and uh, several survivors to do restorative justice work together. So I'm out there in the community. You can find me all over the country doing this work, but definitely find me on Twitter, find me on my website and, and reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Super. That conference in Connecticut is in April, by the way. It's uh, being sponsored or put on by One Standard of Justice. Check it out online. You'll also be at the Narsal Conference in June, I believe, where uh, I look forward to uh, maybe buying you a sandwich or something. I would love that. I would love to meet you. Thank you again so much for being our guest tonight, and we'll definitely be sure to have you back. Folks, you've been listening to Registry Report Radio. We are going to try to have a show every week. We're going to have a bonus show tomorrow where we talk about the Supreme Court of Georgia decision on GPS tracking. So make sure you don't miss that. If you want to put your two cents in on that discussion, you can call in. The number is 563-999-3712. We'll make you a part of the show. So call in and tell us what you think. My name is Michael McKay, and you're listening to Registry Report Radio.